Maybe if you have a pencil or pen, do that now. Write down the first five things that come to your mind or think of the first five things that come to your mind when thinking of who you are. How would you describe yourself with five words? Maybe it's Christian. In my case, husband, dad, pastor, friend. Or Christian, single, student, son or daughter. Maybe something you enjoy doing or eating. I don't know. There's an endless number of descriptions that we might use to speak to our identity in this world. I don't know what five words that you're thinking of right now or five things that you've even written down, but I just wonder how many of us in our thinking or in our writing down this morning included the word steward as a description of your life as an identity marker of who you are. Now I can't read your mind and I can't see your list, but my guess is that relatively very few of us had the word steward in mind when we thought of how to describe ourselves. If you wrote down steward, raise your hand. You're coming up here to preach the rest of this. Steward. If you are a Christian, brothers and sisters, one of the things that you need to be reminded of, I need to be reminded of this morning, that as a Christian, that is our primary identity in Christ. And everything else flows from that, including this idea of steward. As Christians, we are all called to be stewards of our lives, of resources that God has allowed us to enjoy for his purposes in this world. One pastor I recently heard said it this way, that this life is a seed to be sown for eternity. This life, your life, my life, is a seed to be sown for eternity. The life you live here is a life that is to look to and prepare for eternity. And so by keeping these things in mind, the way we go about this life is certainly many things, including many different pieces to our identity, but steward should be at the top of the list. We're called to be stewards. We're called to steward our lives. We're called to steward our relationships, our resources our responsibilities, so many things that we're called to steward in this world. And that's exactly what Jesus is speaking of here in Luke chapter 16. In fact, just a reminder, since we've been out of Luke for a few weeks, we're right in the midst of a lengthy series of parables. In fact, I think this is the sixth parable that we come to one after another. We've been in chapter 14 and 15 and seeing the parables that He's unfolded the parable of the wedding feast, the great banquet, the the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, which all have this, this same point. And now we come to this parable of the dishonest manager. But notice the context. In previous parables, Jesus has been speaking to the Pharisees and scribes and describing through parable form 
what it is that God is about. But now in verse 1 of chapter 16, we see how Jesus is now directing these, this particular parable and this instruction to who? His disciples. He's turned back to the disciples now to engage them and to instruct them through this parable and through this other content to help them understand what their life is to be, particularly in this case, as a steward. That's his point. As disciples, as Christians, we are all called to be stewards with our life and our resources. And what he does is throughout these 18 verses, he unpacks several traits of a steward, if you will, that I want us to consider from this text today. At least three traits of a steward that we're going to consider, and the first one being this. We're called to be a shrewd steward. You see that in verses 1 through 9 in this parable. Now, the parable of the dishonest manager is not a parable that pastors tend to run to to preach. In fact, I don't recall ever preaching this parable before or teaching on it, unless it was just hitting it in passing. Uh, It's not easy. In fact, many will point out that it's the most difficult parable of all of Jesus' parables to try to understand. Not because it's necessarily hard to follow, but because of what happens towards the end of it. Just walk us back through it a bit. In the parable, we have a rich man with a lot of possessions, and it was common for rich folk then to have stewards, to have managers that would basically oversee their resources and their wealth, and so he has a manager. And apparently at some point, the rich man gets word that this manager has not been doing a very good job of taking care of his possessions, wasting them indeed. And so in verse 2, we see that he fires him. That's at this thing that things begin to pick up a little speed, and this manager, instead of going on his merry way, he determines to use his position, even though it's short-lived, as a means through which he's going to take care of his future. He still had possession of the accounts, it seems, and so he sought to utilize this opportunity for himself to gain favor with the debtors so that he could have a place to live, a place to lodge. We're told there in verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my my master is taking the management from me? I'm not strong enough to dig whether he is physically unable or he is just lazy, and I'm ashamed to beg. He was prideful. So I've decided to do this so that when I'm removed from management, and this is key, the decision he's about to make so that when he's removed from his management, people may receive me into their houses. He's not going to be homeless. So he's about to make a decision that sets him up for the immediate future so that he would have lodging and be taken care of. So he summons the master's debtors one by one, and he makes a side deal with some of them. He cuts their debts. He reduces the debt so what they owed was less, which would then put him in a favorable light so that they would receive him into their homes when they get word that this rich man has fired him. Quite crafty. That's exactly what he did. Now, whether he... There's a lot of discussion about this parable. Now, when, it, when he cuts the debts, there's been a lot of discussion on whether did he reduce the interest? 
Did he just simply, in a good way, take away the portion would have been owed to him? Uh, or something else? It's just hard to tell what exactly took place. Regardless, though, what happens is he puts himself in a positive light towards the debtors. And then the, the parable takes a bit of an unexpected turn. So after he meets with these debtors and cuts their bill, and look at verse 8. And this is what throws people off. The master, the rich man, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then to make things more complicated, Jesus takes that in the second part of verse 8 and makes application to the disciples. For the sons of this world, the, those who are of this world, those who are worldly, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, than those who follow the Lord. So, this is what often throws people, is how can Jesus, through this parable, be holding up a dishonest man as a positive example? Well, he does so not in his dishonesty, but in his shrewdness, in his insight, his wisdom, his understanding of, of life. He, he's pointing to this dishonest manager's shrewdness as an example. It's the, the rich man that comes along and says, well played. That was smart. And then Jesus takes it further. And then seems to be encouraging his disciples to imitate this man. You see that in verses 8 and 9. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth or worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And this is where things get a little complicated to understand. Verses 8 and 9 of the parable are, are really the punchline, the application. Jesus' point here is saying, listen, people of this world are shrewd in how they deal with, with their worldly wealth. And sadly, worldly people are often more shrewd than my people. They use their wisdom to their benefit in ways that my people often do not. He's saying even worldly people know how to be shrewd, how to be wise, and use their wealth to secure their own self-interest in this world. And it's as if he's saying, if, if worldly, ungodly people can be shrewd for earthly matters, then we, as the people of God, ought to at least be as shrewd concerning eternal matters. That's his point, I think, in this text. In other words, learn from this man, not his dishonesty, but his shrewdness. And use that kind of wisdom and insight with eternity in mind. Brothers and sisters, we see how the world does this all the time. People are always looking to leverage their money and resources to gain more and more in this world. And we know that's true because oftentimes we do it. This man does it in order to secure himself 
future shelter and make provision for himself. And Jesus is calling his disciples to imitate this kind of wisdom, but with one big difference. We are to use it to make friends, he says in verse 9, with yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, when it's gone, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You see his eternal perspective is brought to bear upon this call to imitate shrewdness. Two questions then arise. Well, what does he mean? How do we make friends? What does that mean? Verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth. Well, it's not a lesson on friendship proper, per se, as much as it is a lesson on stewardship. By making friends with worldly wealth, we are being called to submit the resources God has given us to support God's purposes in the world. And we do that by making friends, so to speak, by blessing others in need supporting gospel workers, investing in kingdom causes. Contrast that to the attitude of the Pharisees. They used wealth to gain things to serve themselves. But Jesus is reminding us here that though the world may be shrewd in gaining worldly wealth and temporal things, and the Pharisees certainly followed that track, selfishly so, We're called to something greater. We are called to use wealth and resources to serve others, to make friends, to serve others and glorify God. It's a reminder, albeit through this parable that throws us for a loop, it's a reminder that the way a Christian uses his or her money in this world reflects what we care about eternally. And then what is this about being welcomed into eternal dwellings? How do they welcome us into the eternal dwellings? What does that mean? Well, Jesus is not saying that if you just simply give to the needy and support ministry workers, you'll earn your way to heaven. That's not what he's teaching. Give to the needy, go to heaven. That's not the gospel. Salvation comes, we know, by grace. It's a free gift of God. We receive through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf. By living a life of righteousness and dying a death to take upon himself our sin, was raised three days later from the grave and those who believe in him, follow him, repent of their sins and put their hope in him will be saved. But as James reminds us, faith without works is dead. Just making sure you weren't. Faith without works is dead. So as we strive as Christians to be stewards in this life with worldly wealth even, which is ultimately God's, God owns everything. As we seek to be good stewards in this life, even with the wealth that we have in this life, we will be welcomed into heavenly dwellings as those who truly believed. You see the 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 argument here. As you seek to steward the things of this world, you demonstrate in a way that glorifies God, you demonstrate through your works genuine saving faith, and as you do that, you're going to be welcomed into the heavenly dwellings. You could say it this way. The Christian 
who stewards the world's wealth to do God's work in God's way will have God's welcome in heaven. The Christian who stewards the world's wealth to do God's work in God's way will have God's welcome. And so it's a, it's a call to the disciples as a demonstration of saving faith that we're to be wise with the wealth that we enjoy, no matter how much or how little we have. And such wisdom will lead you to be a, wise, a, a careful steward where you're not living out of the desire for selfish indulgence, but you understand that you're living for the purpose of, purposes of God's kingdom. This is through this parable what Jesus is getting at. Be shrewd. Use the world's wealth wisely for God's eternal purposes. Friends, I think that this is a good reminder for all of us to consider because we all live in this world. We live in the wealthiest, if not one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest nation in the world, in one of the most wealthy regions of this nation. And if you can come in here and think that wealth is not a problem for you that you struggle with, then I'm, I would say you would probably be deceived. I think all of us, to some degree, struggle with what to do with the resources we have, small or large. And so, just think about it this way. If, if we were to take your budget, your family budget, your individual budget, and put it on the screen this morning, wouldn't that be humbling? What would be true of you? Would it be clear, just in a glimpse of your budget, that you are investing wisely in this world with the world's wealth for God's eternal purposes? Would it be clear? Or would it be clear that you're investing in selfish indulgence to serve self? Would your shrewdness through your budget reflect more of a selfish indulgence or a gospel priority? called to be a shrewd steward, to be wise, to be insightful in how we manage the resources God has given us for his glory so that when we're welcomed into the eternal dwellings, we will be welcomed with gladness. Number two, we're called to be a faithful steward, and you see that in verses 10 through 13. Jesus goes on there in these verses, which are connected to the previous ones, to further describe this call to stewardship. And he highlights there several important points, particularly this idea of faithfulness. In verse 10, he says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. And so he's calling us here to faithfulness in stewardship. I want you to see a couple of things. Number one, I want you to notice the progression of faithfulness. You can be wise and shrewd and yet be unfaithful and selfish. Case in point, the dishonest manager. He was shrewd. He was crafty. But he was also dishonest in how he proceeded to handle the master's accounts and debtors. So here in verse 10 and 11, Jesus speaks to the issue of stewardship and faithfulness by saying, how you handle the small things 
is a clue and a reflection of how you can be trusted with greater responsibility. So our attitude towards money says a lot about the condition of our hearts. Money may be a small thing, but brothers and sisters, it is not a trivial thing. Great Anglican J.C. Ryle said it this way, he guards us against supposing that such conduct about money as that of the unjust steward ought to ever be considered a light and trifling thing among Christians. That's why Jesus says elsewhere that where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So you see this progression, faithful in the little, faithful in much. Unfaithful in the little, if you're not managing the resources, and even in the little decisions, we've heard this before, that every financial decision we make is some reflection of the condition of our hearts towards God. And if we're not faithfully managing the small things, then how can we be expected to manage the greater things? So you see this progression, be faithful in the small, so that as you progress, God gives you more and more and more to faithfully steward. But I want you all to say, not only see the progression of faithfulness, I want you to see the threat to faithfulness. Jesus gets right, he gets right down to the crux of the matter in verse 13. He's talking about faithfulness. He's talking about if you're faithful in a little, you'll be faithful in a lot. If you're unfaithful in a little, you'll be unfaithful in a lot. And then he says, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So he identifies the two masters that he refers to at the beginning of the verse as God and money. You can't serve both. Now, while this was directed to the disciples, we know that from verses 14 and 15, which we'll get to in a second, that the Pharisees were listening in. And Jesus is warning the disciples here while at the same time exposing the Pharisees that money can become an idol. And you cannot serve both. In fact, your attitude towards wealth, resources, how you spend your money, how you utilize what you have, shows who you truly worship. Stewardship is not a money issue. It's a worship issue. Stewardship is not a reflection of how smart you are in managing numbers. It is a reflection of who you worship. Money, self, or God. Friends, I ask you simply to consider what does your spending, what does your saving, what does your gaining, your view of worldly wealth reveal about who you ultimately worship? We're called to be a faithful steward, faithfully stewarding that which God has given us. And even if he's given us a lot, he's entrusting us with a lot to be faithful with what we have. And as we do so, you can have a lot of money and if you steward it wisely for the purposes of God and his kingdom, 
Praise God. It's a matter of worship. You understand your role. You understand who God is. You understand your purpose in this life. Not as somebody to gain and build your own little kingdoms, but someone to receive and give and invest for eternal causes and purposes. We're called to be faithful. But number three, we see that we're called also to be an obedient steward. We know these verses too are, are connected because of the very first thing Jesus or the very first thing that Luke records for us in verse 14. Jesus says in 13, you cannot serve God in money. And then verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Do you see what Luke is doing here? He's exposing the Pharisees. He's in essence saying, Jesus just said you can't serve God in money. Pharisees, you love money, therefore you're not loving God. It's clear who you worship, Pharisees. And they weren't dumb. They would have caught on to that. And so they respond and they ridicule Jesus. They make fun of him for teaching these kinds of things because they know that if true, they're guilty as charged. They were lovers of money which meant they could not be lovers of God. Money was their master, and so Jesus responds, and as he does so, he reminds them how God knows their hearts, and then he goes on to reference the law. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, they ridiculed Jesus, and he, Jesus, said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then he moves on to talk to reference the law and the prophets. He says the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone who forces his way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Like, okay, we've moved from a kind of hard to understand parable to clear instruction about faithfulness and stewardship. And now the law. Jesus responds with this reference. Why would he do this? Well, we know that Pharisees would have, quote unquote, been experts of the law. And when they ridiculed Jesus, they were likely accusing him of misunderstanding or misrepresenting some aspect of the law. They were always going to take everything back to the law, but not just the law, their additional laws, right? So, so they're, they're basing this ridicule of Jesus on their understanding and application of the law. So Jesus wanted them to know that what he had to say about stewardship and idolatry and faithfulness was not in contradiction to the law, it was right in line with it. First thing he does is he confronts their hypocrisy. He says, you may be able to justify your money-loving hearts, your greediness before your fellow man, but you don't fool God, not for a moment. He sees and he knows your heart. It's as if he's saying, don't act like such idolatry is not a possibility for you, that you have no hidden idolatry in your hearts. God knows your hearts and he is not fooled. Again, this serves 
two purposes. As he's exposing the Pharisees, it's serving as a warning to the disciples and to us. Let the Pharisees, it's as if Jesus is saying, let the Pharisees stand as exhibit A on what idolatry looks like. You can't serve two masters. They serve money. Therefore, they can't serve God. They were lovers of money. And lovers of money worship money, possessions, materialism, and so forth. Jesus is reminding us here that whenever we exalt things, even our possessions before God, we need to know this is an abomination. We like to point to a lot of different kinds of things in the Bible that are abominations, but heart idolatry, this idolatry that's in the heart that's, that's regarding wealth and resources is an abomination. It may be that the way the world looks at things and the way that this world works may get us by if we act accordingly. But in God's eyes, the one who sees even our hearts, all forms of idolatry are abominable. And at the heart of the Pharisees' problem was their lack of regard for the law. Jesus raises that matter in verses 16 and 17, we see, showing that his teaching was in alignment with it. Law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. So John the Baptist was the last in the Old Testament prophet line, so to speak. He comes announcing, notice what? The good news of the kingdom of God. He's, he's, his message right out of the, 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 the box is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So he's referencing John. He's saying the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it, but... Jesus is saying, it's not as if the things in the law have become void. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Fulfilled, yes. Void, no. So if you want to bring law arguments against me and accuse me of misunderstanding, no, 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 no. I'm working in alignment with the law, Pharisees. You are the ones who have abandoned it. It's the time of fulfillment. And the times of promise have given way to times of fulfillment. But the law is still relevant to some degree because it's the law that reveals our idolatry. The law is there to expose our sinfulness and idolatry so that we're driven to the hope that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The law says, here's what holiness looks like, and it shows us we're not that, and we can't be that. We can't obey our way into the kingdom of God. We can't just do enough good and good and good and good until God says, okay, that's great, you're in. No, it says you're a sinner, you're outside of the camp. And the gospel comes in to say, here's how you're forgiven and redeemed and brought back in. The law reveals our idolatry. And this was a problem for the Pharisees. The law exposed them. And the whole while they thought they had the right take on the law, exposing everybody else. But no, Jesus points it right back to them. They're the ones now being ridiculed. And here Jesus uses two examples. He, he points to their idolatry, their, their, their love of money and greed. And then he then he uses an example of divorce and remarriage. You may look at verse 18 and say, where in the world does that come from? It just falls out of nowhere, doesn't it? 
Here he is talking about stewardship, resources, being faithful in, in these things. And then the, money, the, the Pharisees are being kind of pushed against because they were lovers of money, not lovers of God. And then everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. How does that jive with what's just been said? That's a great question, one. But my, my take here is that Jesus is using this as an example from the law to further expose their mishandling of the law. Not only were they idolatrous in their greed and their love for money, they were confused in their application of the law. And so you think about the example of divorce and remarriage. Israel, compared to Rome, had quite a strict approach to divorce and remarriage. Very few exceptions were given. And for women in this day and time, for women, it was almost impossible for someone, a woman, to, to file for a divorce, thus the reference here to men. And women were often stuck in, in very complicated situations, but for the men, there was all kinds of loopholes. Loopholes created by the Pharisees. Even the Pharisees allowed for divorces from the men. A man could even apply for a divorce if, she, if, the, if the wife burnt his meal. This is how extreme and how crazy and how ludicrous their application of the law had become. And Jesus is saying, no, if anyone has loosened the law, it's you Pharisees. My teaching, even on marriage and divorce and remarriage, has, has, is a whole lot more in a line with the scriptures. In fact, it fulfills what's being said and he carries on this teaching further in the New Testament. He's using this as an example to say, not so fast. You can accuse me all day long of not following the law, but your love of money and your unbiblical approach to divorce and remarriage shows just how out of touch you are to the law. It's an indictment on you, Pharisees. He's saying here in no uncertain terms that he has disregarded the law. Not at all. While he is the fulfillment of the law, his teachings are in alignment with it. He truly understood it. And he understood the law that they, that they would, and, and had they understood the law, had they understood the right purpose of the law, they would have responded to Jesus' teaching with a plea for mercy, not ridicule. They would have understood just how sinful they were and how much they needed in Jesus. It's exactly what the law does. It shows us our sin. It shows us our lack of righteousness. And while it shows us the standard of holiness and exposes our lack of holiness and, right, un, and our unrighteousness, it cannot rescue us. This is why we needed something beyond the law, and that's exactly what Jesus points to in this text. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And again, that's what John came preaching. Only Jesus, only Jesus provides the solution for sin. And it's this gospel, it's this gospel that is preached and proclaimed and believed that does this work of transformation in us that leads to right obedience. If anyone had disregarded the commands of God, it was the Pharisees. God's word continues in full force. Yes, the promises of the Old Testament have found fulfillment in the New Testament, but that does not give us warrant to just void the Old Testament. There are pastors today that rarely, if not refuse, they, they refuse to preach the Old Testament. It, it's not relevant, they will say. 
unless you understand both the Old Testament promise and the New Testament fulfillment, you're going to be missing out a whole lot. While much of the ceremonial aspects of the law have been fulfilled through Christ, many of the commands have been carried on by Jesus, given further clarity even in some cases. So when we see Jesus as fulfillment and the source of our salvation, we're, we're running to him to find hope in him, not ridiculing him and abandoning him. It's a salvation that calls us to faithfulness and obedience. That's why as a Christian and hearing this text today, you should be examining your own heart to see where idolatry may be creeping in. Examine your own heart Asking questions, Lord, am I a lover of money? Am I stewarding even the the small things you've given me well? Am I preparing myself for the eternal dwellings or am I more concerned about the, the temporal dwellings? God calls us to faithfulness in our stewardship. He calls us to be wise, to be shrewd. Be faithful even in the small things so that we can be given more responsibilities and to be obedient stewards. You know, friends, we are all, we view our own lives in so many different ways, don't we? We think about who we are, our identity. But as a Christian, part of our identity as a Christian is to be a steward. That's not an extra patch you get like year four. Or if you passed a certain Bible test, you graduate to steward. No, Christian, disciple, repenter, steward, all of these things are the same person. Yes, at varying levels of maturity for sure, but we're all called to this. And we're all called to continually examine where where we're tempted to give in to idolatry, where we're tempted to hoard things for ourselves and not live for the the sake of the gospel and the, 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 the advance of the kingdom. This is what this passage is doing. It's pushing in to the disciples, to us, asking us to, to, to evaluate these things. Friends, as men and women, as Christians whose life has been called to follow Jesus. We are called to be those seeds that are sown for eternity. This life is not ultimately ours. It's a gift given to you, given to me from God to steward, not for our selfish indulgence, but for God's glory and for his purposes in this world. So brothers and sisters, let's, by the grace of God, thrive as stewards in this world. Let's do it shrewdly, let's do it faithfully, and let's do it in obedience to our great God. That's why he created you, and that's why he saved you. And it brings glory to him. So let's hear that this morning from Christ. And let's heed it. And let's give ourselves to it faithfully all the days that we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, even when it may be challenging to understand at times, Lord, we know that the clarity of your word is 
presented to us and your Holy Spirit gives us understanding of it. And particularly this morning, Lord, my prayer is that as we hear your word today, that we would consider how it may be pushing in on our own lives. Lord, where we may be tempted to love money more than we love you, Lord, that, that's a temptation. Lord, it's a temptation I have. That we be more concerned with the things of this world and more concerned with, with wealth and gaining more than I am for serving the cause of the gospel, for being concerned with eternal dwellings and not merely present ones. So Lord, would you forgive us when we have fallen into this temptation and given ourselves to it and would you guard us against it? Lord, would you remind us that stewardship is a glorious responsibility that you have given us and Lord, remind us that it's also an indication of worship, who we worship. So God, would you help us? Would you help us to be stewards? Would you help us to live our lives and to use our resources, spend our money, not merely for that which is present, but Lord, that we would invest ourselves totally for that which lasts forever. Father, I pray for those who may be here today or may be watching and listening. Maybe they're not Christians. Maybe they hear this and they're confronted with their own, the reality of their own sin. Lord, as they think about the law and they think about your standard, they, they realize very clearly they don't live up to that standard and they, they realize that they would be guilty of sinning against you. Father, would you open their eyes to the reality this morning that, Lord, that is the case for all of us, and yet by your grace you provided your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come into this world to be their Savior, to forgive them of their sins and to give them a right standing before you. Help them to put their hope and trust in Christ. And as Christians, Lord, may we all, wherever we are in our walk with you, may we be given over as faithful stewards for your glory all the days in which we live. Thank you for this word this morning and would you implant it deeply in our hearts that we may live faithfully for you this week as stewards, we pray. In Jesus' name.